Welcome back to this episode of Mum, Will the Planet Die Before I Do? Don't forget to keep in touch with us and to follow us on social media using the hashtag Mum, Will the Planet Die? In this episode, we're speaking to Nadia Whittam, who is a British politician elected to Parliament in 2019 when she was just 23 years old, which made her the UK's youngest MP. Nadia has led the UK Parliament's first ever debate on climate education and is part of a campaign calling for climate change to be part of the school curriculum. Nadia joined us to explain why she thinks education is the key to tackling the climate crisis. Nadia, what is climate education? Because you've been working on on this for a number of years. Um, What does it actually mean? The way that we see it, so I've been working with young people, school students from a, a group called Teach the Future, and we've put forward a climate education bill. And what we're calling for is for climate education, so teaching about the climate crisis, um, the climate and ecological emergency, teaching about the the solutions to it, the causes, for that to be woven like a golden thread throughout the education system. So from early years and primary through to secondary, right through to vocational courses as well. So currently, children are only taught about climate change in optional subjects like GCSE geography or triple science. And we're saying that this is the biggest threat that humanity faces and children should be taught about this in every subject. So that could mean, for example, learning about sustainable diets and sustainable food production in food tech. It could mean learning about how to install um, low carbon heat pumps in plumbing courses at FE colleges. And what does that look like in terms of you know rolling that out in a school because it might be teachers listening to this going oh gosh how are we even going to navigate that yeah so it's actually extremely popular among both teachers and students there was a teach the future conducted a survey and the vast majority of teachers and students support this we've also got support from the national association of head teachers you know with teachers being very overstretched and under-resourced it's understandable that often they can be quite resistant to curriculum change but climate education like black history is an area that educators are are completely behind and actually are already in many cases implementing this in their own schools it just doesn't have a statutory framework around it so it's like a postcode lottery for children some schools will teach it often the schools that have more resources and other schools don't. So why are you so passionate about it then? Why do you think that that is the answer to tackling the climate crisis? I don't think it's a silver bullet. I think it's a very small part of the answer, but it's an important part nevertheless. So we need to rapidly decarbonise our economy if we're to bring the planet back from the brink of climate catastrophe. And the only way that we can do that, the only way that we can skill up young people for the green jobs of the future is by teaching them about the climate crisis and teaching them about how to be how to be positive actors for, for change in that, not just on an individual level, but also like on a societal level. It makes complete sense to me listening to you and probably quite a lot of people listening to what you're saying but 
I mean, the question is then, why has it not happened? And what, what's the problem? Why, why is it not being rolled out in all the schools? Why is it taking so long? Well, that's a really good question. And it's one that we've been grappling with. In fact, when, when I came to Parliament, I couldn't believe how that this was one of the first things that I did because I'm, I was elected in 2019 as the youngest MP in, in Parliament. You were just and 23, weren't you? Yeah, was, yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah. we'll talk about that in a moment because I want to. I want to know all about how that came about. But um, but yeah, go ahead. Well, I very much came from the the kind of generation, like granted, very much the upper end of that generation, but the generation of the kind of climate strikes and youth climate activism, and I felt a very special responsibility when I was elected to represent my constituents, but also to represent my generation. Mm. And this was something that young people were calling for. It had been part of the demands around um, the school climate strikes. And I couldn't believe how difficult it was to actually secure cross-party support for this. Tell me what that looked like. Like, how, What did you have to go through? Like, Even having the conversation about it, was that a difficult one with your fellow, like your peers? It was at times like I, I knew that I had to get support from Conservative MPs to have a chance of this kind of being adopted by the government, because when the Tories are in power and particularly when they've got such a massive majority, it's not possible to to win anything without support of MPs from that party. Um, and even then, it's incredibly difficult. And I can talk a little bit about the progress of the bill. But yeah, when I first started having those conversations with Tory MPs, they'd sort of laugh at me and say, oh, I think you'll find they do teach climate education in schools. And I'd explain to them that it's, it's only taught in optional subjects, that even if the government is going to meet its own net zero targets and fulfil its own green jobs agenda, which I'm critical of, I don't think it goes anywhere near far enough, but even on their own terms, climate education is a necessary part of that. But now, after a lot of hard work from our campaign, we've managed to get cross-party support from all parties. We've got the support of four select committee chairs, three of whom are Conservative MPs, it's backed by the Labour front bench. So this is Labour Party policy now. And yeah, we have support from other opposition parties as well, like the Greens, the Lib Dems, the SNP. Well done. <laughs> like you're getting there, but obviously it's taken a while to really convince everyone to get on board. And it all, I always get the sense that when it comes to anything like this, like real kind of action-based solutions with the climate crisis, I don't know why there's always a reticence first to kind of adopt it. Why do you think that is? I think it varies. So usually I think the problem is vested interests. So there are a lot of MPs who who sit on the other side, who are in government, who want to protect the interests of big polluters, of, of oil giants. Mm. And so they're not going to vote for the bold policies that we need to, to tackle the climate crisis, to tackle massive inequality because they're they're interlinked like the the likes of Shell and BP that have made windfall profits are doing so at the same time as the cost of living crisis but they're not going to implement a windfall tax on them not a proper windfall tax because they support those interests but with this it's it's a little bit different because it is such a 
it's such a moderate change that could be implemented tomorrow and it would make a difference for years to come. But I think for a lot of people in Parliament, MPs who are kind of have been there for a long time, they've been ministers and they look at a young Labour MP and probably think, oh, we know so much better. And I think that's from what we've discovered in the first series of this podcast, speaking to a lot of um, youth activists, it's like they think that because of their age, they're discriminated against because people don't take them seriously, but they probably know the science and the solutions better than anybody else. Yeah, and I think that's why I feel a real responsibility to be bringing this bill with young people themselves. I think it's important that it's school students who have written the bill. And when I speak to my fellow MPs, and Labour colleagues and Lib Dem colleagues and now some senior Tory MPs as well are very moved by um, by the stories of young people when they speak about eco-anxiety as well, because this is education and knowledge is something that will combat that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased about the progress that we've made, but we've got much further to go. We want to we want to make this law and we were disappointed not to see it adopted in the government's sustainability review of the education sector. We don't want to have to wait for a Labour government to implement this, but we're, we're very pleased that the Labour Party is, is committed to it. So you've got cross-party support for this, it is called the Climate Education Bill, something you've been working on for ages, but it's not yet in law. What do you think it's going to take to get it in every single school, compulsory education? Well, we're just going to keep bringing it back and making a lot of noise about it until the government listens to this growing body of people, of children, teachers, parents, industry bodies, third sector bodies, trade unions, MPs from across parliament until the pressure becomes so great that they have to implement it. And if that doesn't work, then a Labour government will do it. But I mean, I'm just trying to work out, like, if with that cross-party support, and everyone's saying, oh, well done, we acknowledge and we hear the voices of that youth movement. Why then are we still having this conversation about why it's not being done? What, what's the big why? Why can they not just do it tomorrow? That's what really frustrates me, because so many older MPs will talk about being inspired by um, youth climate activists, but they don't actually act like they're inspired. It's You can't just outsource hope to young people. Like, yes, it's great that young people are being active, that they force this to the top of the political agenda. I don't think that Parliament would have declared a climate and ecological emergency in 2019 if it wasn't for children going on strike from school. But young people overwhelmingly do not have power in society. Like, for example, I'm the only Gen Z member of Parliament currently. So the the older generation that does hold power, like political power, MPs need to need to act. How do you find the motivation to carry on with this? I think there's so much hope out there. Like there have been huge wins um, that have come about as a result of protest and making your voice heard, getting Parliament to declare a climate and ecological emergency being one of them. Um, but other things throughout history, like, you know, right back to really fundamental things like the right to vote. And this is nowhere near as radical as that. So I, I think that we have a growing movement of people who recognise um, that this is a threat, that the climate crisis is a huge threat to our lives right now. It's impacting people's lives and livelihoods, particularly in the global south already. 
and there are irreversible impacts of climate change that we're going to have to mitigate but also right here in this country like air pollution is one of the biggest killers and people are alive to that and they see it not as not as a kind of separate issue to the cost of living crisis and other pressures that they face but actually as something that is is very connected to that. Yeah, in the first episode of this series, we spoke to Rosamond Kissy Deborah, who is a big campaigner on air pollution because um, her sadly her daughter Ella, and you may be aware of um, Ella's case, you know, died um, from an asthma um, attack, a severe asthma attack, and it was proven by the coroners and the inquest that it was due to air pollution in London, and and it's shocking. And she such a tragic case, and... such a tragic case, but she's been so incredible in banging the drum for change um and and still is and uh, you know it's when we speak to people like her and yourself it's inspiring to know that you that you want to keep carrying on because it is so important to you to bring this bill about but let, let's say it comes in and we've got that you know amazing wish list and, and it happens what then is it is it enough to just be putting it into the education system for kids oh absolutely not it's a tiny part of the solution um, which makes it all the more frustrating that it hasn't happened yet. I mean, to stop runaway climate change, we have to be reducing our emissions by half every decade. And to do that, yes, we need we need climate education because we need a public that is informed and is knowledgeable about the climate and the scale of the climate crisis. Yeah. Um, we also need a completely different emphasis on the kind of skills that are valued and taught in our society which climate education would help with but beyond that we need a green new deal and that means huge investment in well-paid sustainable jobs it means completely reimagining what our economy and what our society looks like yeah the big change of the system which we hear so much about but you know it's interesting when we talk about education and climate crisis and I think immediately, well, in some people's minds, they think, oh, no, we're going to be teaching our kids about, you know, doom and destruction and tragedy and, you know, all that anxiety-inducing stuff. But it's it's not that. It's more than that, right? It's about empowering the kids to understand that there are options to live sustainably. And, and you mentioned it earlier about, you know, tech jobs and sustainable living and regrowth of you know farmlands and and it's just so much more that our kids probably have no clue about at the moment yeah and actually I think it's the opposite of teaching kids about doom and gloom because children are already extremely worried about the climate crisis they're worried about their futures one of the things that I said in in my speech in parliament was that 2015 might feel like a faraway date for for people who will have long left Parliament by that time, but for my generation, we'll still be of of working age in 2050. For people younger than me, like for for a five year old, they'll be 35 mm. in in 2050. They'll be right in the middle of their adult lives. This is about the planet that they're inheriting. In fact, I led a Westminster Hall debate on climate education um, a couple of years ago. And it was one of the Conservative MPs, Derek Thomas, who spoke about how this could help tackle eco-anxiety. And I think that's a really important point. It would provide a kind of safe, secure space for young people to 
talk about eco-anxiety. It would also present an opportunity to teach young people about the power and the opportunities that they have when they work together to, to enact change. And I read subsequently that there was this study by a Finnish academic in 2020 that found that finding ways to participate in problem solving in relation to the ecological crisis can help alleviate distress and help stem the flow of the climate crisis. Yeah, I've, I've heard that too. And I think, um, I think it boils down to like mental health and conversations around mental health. Anxiety is that where you're just being open and, and anything that is open means that it's a bit more accessible um, in terms of the tools that we might be able to, to use to kind of help our mental health, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, exactly. And it also helps children and young people to kind of approach the problem with a more collective mindset because collective action is recommended over individual action. That was one of the things that the study found and, and that avoids students feeling helpless by the limits of what they can do alone because mm. obviously we can do a certain amount within our lifestyles like diet change but even if all of us did that and I, I say that as a vegan that wouldn't anywhere near meet the scale of the crisis and the scale of action that's required we need system change and that is going to be difficult <laughs> to kind of bring in the big kind of um, juggernaut right for change it is because there are very powerful people and interests who don't want system change because they benefit from the system just as it is um, oh, we're going around in circles of, aren't we it's always going yeah, around in circles exactly. like, oh. the, the likes of Shell and BP as I say who have made huge profits from um, from the cost of living crisis and from extracting essentially from extracting wealth from people and extracting resources from our planet they love the system as it works and they'll be very resistant to that change and that's why it's important that we have a mass movement that that demands it but also parliamentary representation of that movement so that laws are are being implemented like when I speak about a Green New Deal, that requires Parliament to take action. It requires the state to inject huge amounts of investment into public services, into infrastructure, into creating those well-paid, sustainable, unionised jobs of the future. Yeah. And it takes a community, doesn't it, of people to kind of bring about that change. But in terms of what Parliament looks like, it's not full of a lot of Nadia's. Some would say, unfortunately. So with that in mind, I mean, you, you talk about representation, but you came to Parliament 23 years of age in 2019. Why? Um, when, I, when I stood for election, even though my seat has a, a big Labour majority, it's often kind of the internal election to become the candidate that is the most difficult part of like the, the whole process. And when I stood for that, it was essentially because lots of us as activists in Nottingham, um, that's where I was born and bred, um, it's where I've lived my whole life. And I've been active in local campaigns since I was 16. And we kind of thought our city needs a change, our city needs more representation. But I just um, want to get to the moment that you thought, I am going to take this on and I'm going to run for this. Um, what was the thinking behind that? Because... Many people, I mean, it obviously took you a few years. So we're going back to maybe in your late teens 
where your kind of political ambitions if that's the right way of putting it kind of I wasn't thinking of it then um when I was 16 and I got involved it was because of the bedroom tax and I wanted to be part of like the resistance against it what's the bedroom Um, tax so this was a tax that was introduced by the coalition conservative Lib Dem government in 2013 it's it's still in place today and it means that if you live in a council home and you have a spare bedroom that you have to pay a tax on it and it's cruel for all sorts of reasons often people don't have a choice over what home they have so it's not like they can move to a smaller property even if they could they shouldn't have to that's their home there are lots of reasons why people might have a spare room for example if you have a disability if you've got a child who comes to stay at weekends yeah I remember Um, this and there was huge uproar wasn't there Nadia at the time that people like what on earth is this all about so exactly and even even if you don't have a spare room for any of those reasons people should just be able to have a spare room right I have a spare room that I keep all my junk in it was just an extremely cruel piece of legislation so that was the Um, moment then was it for you that you thought I have to do something about this but I wasn't thinking that I would become an MP so then when it did happen how did you feel I was I mean we campaigned really hard and of course we were campaigning to win but I think it's fair to say that none of us actually expected to win. We <laughs> thought that we would improve the debate and that campaigning on left-wing, progressive, bold policies like scrapping the hostile environment, ending anti-trade union laws. Climate crisis. Green, Green New Deal, that that would like improve the quality of the debate. And that would have been enough for us, I think. But obviously delighted that we won with that seat in parliament become comes a lot of pressure I would imagine because you've done you've won it and now you've got to do something about all the promises that you've made right it's just the biggest honor though to get to represent your community and to to hear from people friends and um, community groups and people whose doors you knock on what they care about, what their issues are, and to take that to Parliament and to hold the government to account for how it's failing people. And then to also work on policy that would improve people's lives and not doing that for people and telling people what would make their lives better and make society better, but doing it from the ground up. That's exactly what we wanted to do when we stood. We didn't dream of winning, but we wanted to win. And now we have that's that's a huge privilege to get to do and also like yes as a young MP also as my city's first MP of colour as an LGBT MP there are lots of fights yeah but lots of wins boom 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 right (laughs) in terms of representation which is incredible but it is a hard slog and kind of in real in in actual kind of action time then three years um, what have you learned then about the system in which you're working and what obstacles there are and what um, opportunities there are? I've learned a lot about how Parliament works. Um, I hadn't particularly had experience of that before. I did do short work experience placement in Parliament when I was 19. But other than that, I've learned about how to work 
within a party to to lobby for a policy as we successfully did with climate education I've learned how select committees work though I, I used to be on the environmental audit select committee now I'm on the leveling up select committee I think the biggest thing is kind of that role of being on the outside as well campaigning with people on the streets and trying to bridge those outside movements and what's happening in parliament so that it results in change through parliament yeah you make it sound um doable which is inspiring but of course I think it, is. it is doable I really I really do think it is doable I think that there's a lot of cause for hope um and like yes the government is trying to crush that they're trying to make it more difficult to to go on strike more difficult to protest but it's exactly because those things work that that they're trying to make them more difficult to do um, and we've just got to keep coming together and pushing back. And that's exactly what people are doing. And it's it's not something that I think is being led by Parliament. We're just sort of like the parliamentary voice for those movements that are happening outside. What do you want to share with our listeners that, you know, we are talking about how to raise the next generation who are facing this unprecedented time the climate crisis what would you like to share with our listeners who are thinking well if if the climate education bill isn't going to come in anytime soon what can we do as parents guardians and caregivers to help oh god that's a difficult one I wouldn't dream of advising parents how to parent as someone who hasn't been a parent and I think it's probably the most difficult job in the world well you see we're not a parenting like we're not trying to tell parents how to parent <laughs> we're trying to no, say no, you know, no. I think all of us are kind of thinking what do, what how can we help our kids how can we help the next generation um because you know if we if we haven't got the climate education bill in their lives when they're going to school every day and that's where they spend a lot of their time and doing drop off and pick up then what can we be doing within the home or you know out of the home do you have any tips essentially I think there are lots of good resources that are available I know that there are loads of children's books now that um probably parents will have a lot more knowledge about people listening to this will have more knowledge about than I do but there's certainly more around now than when I was a kid for example and I think probably speaking to your children about this and having an open conversation about it as I think is important with anything else like relationship and sex education but yeah I think it's I also recognize that it will be more difficult for some people than it is for other people like if you're working three jobs you're not going to have a lot of time to speak to your kids about this and that's why it's kind of so important for this to be available to every child and for us to have a Green New Deal that tackles that systemic inequality so that everyone has a good job, everyone has a healthy and happy family life rather than one that is plagued with stress and trying to make ends meet. And what are the youth activists that are going to be listening to this or, or the young people that, uh, you know, are frustrated that the system isn't changing the way they want it to? I would say keep being frustrated, keep being angry and keep doing what you're doing because it might not feel like it, but it is making a change. Now 
it's it's very difficult I think was at, at one point there would be people who would be open climate deniers in parliament they can't do that anymore and that's because largely young people but people of all generations actually and I think it's important that we acknowledge climate activists who started this decades and decades ago when it was very unpopular and when no one listened and people kind of treated them like they were freaks with fringe interests but now it's because of the work that has been done by the climate movement as a whole it's not possible for for MPs and public figures to be open climate deniers the conversation is shifting and that hasn't happened by accident it's been pushed there so we just got to keep pushing Nadia Whitten MP there on the power of education in the climate emergency don't forget you can keep up to date with all podcast news using the hashtag mum will the planet die and do join us next week we're talking gardening with Alistair Griffiths he's the director of science at the Royal Horticultural Society and he'll be telling us how we can be agents of change just by pottering around in our own gardens see you then mum will the planet die before I do is a Corner Shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough and edited by Nisha Patel.